Hey there, Film Buds. Welcome back to the Film Buds podcast. I'm your host, Paul. And I'm Lauren. And uh, today we are bringing an end to our uh, historic best picture month. Um, you know, the the Oscars are next month. They're, they usually land around this time. So if you're if you're just now joining us, the idea was to... Um, take the month of February and kind of highlight films that had won across several decades. And with one exception, we pretty much are like a decade apart, almost, with each of them. Um, And look at films that sort of encapsulated all of these different decades. We went through it. It took us like an hour or so to look at all the films that won Best Picture and kind of whittle down the list. Um, and so, uh, today we're, we're winding it down. We didn't get into the, into the aughts and the teens, but that's also fine because I feel like most people probably have some sense of what won Best Picture from, like, 2000 onward. No, yeah, I mean, you know... If you're listening to this podcast, you were probably alive yeah. during those years. <laughs> so, you know, you may not remember all of them, but, like, I'm sure that the titles would probably sound more familiar than some of these other ones that were, like, you know, we started, like, Brand. almost, yeah, 100 years ago. So... Yeah, you know, the the Audis and then the teens had, you know, Crash and Return of the King and Avatar. You know, a lot of... Things that I think that we all sort of more collectively recognize. Green Book, you know, Moonlight. Yeah, so I, I, I don't feel bad that we didn't get to, to more recent times. Um, because I guess this was supposed to be more of like a history. Mm-hmm. Look back at, at, at how far we've come. And so doing, doing the past like a year, a, a movie that came out last year isn't going to really help me go, hmm historical you know (laughs) it really changed a a a time period for the for the better or worse or etc you know i really feel like i lived back in 2020 you know (laughs) no absolutely um and so we we picked one from each decade and so across the four episodes that we've had in february we've covered uh with this episode eight decades of of filmmaking so we go for uh we did the 20s, the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s and now here we are 80s, 90s. Um and interestingly enough, you know, within each episode there are also sort of interesting little sub themes as well. The first one is kind of a sound picture versus a silent film, you know, and that sort of transition. Our next episode, it was two Elia Kazan films. Completely by accident. <laughs> can't can't reiterate that enough. Completely yeah. by accident. Because we really just went off of pure plot description alone. Yes. And maybe I should have known better because I'm a film person or whatever, but like, whatever. You don't know everything. Um, and it's a learning experience. Mm-hmm. And then the, the 60s and 70s were both sort of tied to... Uh, social themes at the time, you know, the civil rights movement and, and the anti-war movement. And now we're kind of doing big historic epics 
that are also told largely in flashback. Which was also kind of totally by accident as well. Yeah, honestly had no idea how how much of it was going to be like... It was 90, 90% of the movie was going to be told in flashback. Yeah, the, the meat <laughs> of both of these films is really told in their flashbacks. And so without further ado, today we're going to be doing uh, the 1987 film The Last Emperor and the 1996 film The English Patient. Um, but before we get too deep into that, dear, what have you thought of this, this journey? And you don't have to necessarily get into reviewing these films. If you talk about them a little bit, that's fine. But what have you thought of watching film? Uh, you know, film goes back from before 1927, but what did you think of sitting down and seeing film move from the silent era to... 1996. It's been an interesting journey. Um, I really, I really enjoyed it. It was a nice kind of like quick run through of the decades of what, you know, I know that not every movie of the decade felt like the movies that we picked, but it, I loved how each movie encapsulated their, their, um, decade pretty pretty exactly you know in in a in their own unique way from from our silent film of the 20s with it being very theatrical and overacted and you know having to 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 push through the medium to just a decade later being able to to really have a lot of you know interesting dialogue but that also being a play first and having, you know, not having a lot of written film that is, like, original at, at that time period as well. You know, to to jumping all the way to, like, the 60s and 70s of how far just, like, those basis ideas morph into talking about, you know, the, the political aspects of, of just everyday life of the 60s from the civil war the, the civil war from the civil rights movement um and having you know a, a huge name as our as our black lead and having him you know break boundaries as not just the the happy-go-lucky black man and getting really getting able to to play a part that wasn't scene you know it wasn't a part of mass media as a whole uh, you know any any story about black people especially from you know the 60s was like pretty pretty racially charged because of of this fight for equality and it's so it's it's really great to see you know that boundary get pushed to such a an accessible medium as well and the history behind that and honestly you know coming to to our latest movie in the in the 90s really feeling the 90s in this movie and you know if if you, dear listener if you've never watched like a lot of 90s films it's I feel like we went into this weird, like, um, kind of like Titanic era where it was like love, you know, these like epic romance stories of the 90s that were like set in obscure, exotic areas and just, you know, just bigger than life, 
you know, kind of action and and adventure and drama. It was something for the whole family. It, that's the that's the 90s for me and for a lot of movies. Um and it just and you know, just getting to to see how far not only, you know, the acting and the writing and all of these things go, but also, you know, the 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 action and and the the cinematography and how just from going from our 20 silent film all the way up to now how things have gotten even bigger and better you know we had planes in our 20s film but now we've got planes we get to fly you know we get to do all these things and make it look so real without it having to be real it just it's a it was a really fun skip through time i would say no, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I I did these kind of journeys in uh, in college. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so it was interesting to go and and also pull from such a select pool of films as well, and and discuss, you know, what merits those had for the time, why they might be seen as as the best picture you know, at that time Mm -hmm. and why, you know, even with any politics that might be going on, they captured audience attention, you know, and critical attention and, uh, and awards contention, uh, in their respective time periods. And it's also interesting to see certain people carried throughout time. You Mm -hmm. know, we did our episode, um, on Elia Kazan and we essentially saw two Elia Kazan films split by almost a decade and and him giving up, you know, people of the HUAC and and his sort of transition as a filmmaker from these sort of more stagnant shots on sets to being like in locations mm-hmm. and the realness that that brought. But then with that, we also saw in our very next episode, two actors who were in on the waterfront in our two movies. We saw Rod Steiger in uh in the heat of the night and Carl Malden in Patton. Mm-hmm. And so it was also interesting to see these characters kind of repeat and these historical filmmakers cuz you know you look at films now and and you watch people, you know, progress from oh, I remember when Bradley Cooper was that asshole in Wedding Crashers all the way up to, you know, Bradley Cooper now. Mm-hmm. But history, you know, kind of only remembers certain movies and certain films and certain parts and so it was interesting to go back and kind of see some of the progression of certain characters um and it was also interesting to see the progression of um the the climate at the time you know in in the 20s it was the roaring 20s uh there was still incredibly high world war one sentiment uh and then you move on into the the thirties, and it's the bust, and it's class and social consciousness, and wealth inequality. And then you get into uh, the forties, and we talk about anti-Semitism. Then you get into the fifties, and it's about, you know, the the sort of tough urban culture, you know, and the haves and the have-nots, and the infiltration of organized crime into. Um, systems that were meant to protect people. Then you get into the 60s and you have the big emergence of 
you know, race really prevalently in film. Um, and then you have, like, the 70s, where now we're no longer rah-rah, go soldiers, go war, and we're a little bit skeptical, not just of war, but of the people that take part in war, and of the people that are leading war, and the decisions that they make, and who they are. Um, and then, yeah, we get into this, and you, you know, not to get too much into the movies that we talk about, but a lot of the movies today are about identity and, um, the, the lack of permanence of certain institutions and how some things that everyone thinks are going to last forever don't, you know, and, and the folly of, of a certain type of arrogance as well. Um, and so I think that it's interesting to, but also at this point, you know, like the 80s, after the sort of economic and, and turbulent time of the 70s, the 80s were seen as this great time of, like, prosperity. But also, what was our enemy at that time? Communism. And so it's also interesting to see something that takes place in, um... China, after this journey of them from this imperial force to this warlord state to this communist state. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's very interesting um, to have gone through this journey and, and sort of seen all of these things play out. No, and honestly, like, I'm fine with not having seen anything from the, the 2000s. Um, I think that we did, we covered enough of the 2000s when we did our, our 9-11 episode. Mm. Um, and I feel like a lot of 2000s movies harken back to this, like, feeling that we felt during 9-11. And, like, it, it was kind of nice to, to see, because it's so drenched in our, in our pop culture nowadays, to, to see something that was just, like, completely devoid of that. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, and, and, you know... 9-11-2001. By that point, we were still kind of making 90s movies. No, yeah. And so then after that, it was a little bit of this, like, triumphal American spirit thing with the movies immediately after 9-11 that then gave way to a certain kind of cynicism with movies like Hurt Locker, which we've talked about on the show, mm-hmm. and Jarhead, mm-hmm. and, you know, some of this kind of cynicism then, you know, that started to take shape and take form and move in, you know, once the once the war really started to transition into Bush's second term and then especially into Obama's term. Um, so, no, it's... it's I, I, I completely get where you're at with that. Um... But it's it's been a really interesting journey, um, and it's made me, even though I'm not sure that I'll watch them, but we'll get into that later, it has um, made me a little bit more interested in watching the Academies. I haven't watched them in a while, or not even watching them, but more devoutly keeping up with them. I mean, I always, you know, check it out a little bit whenever it happens, but, like, the last ceremony I watched was in full... was like 2016 when Moana won. I am Moana. Careful. Mm. You're going to run right into copyright. Um <laughs> hey, hey, I only did a blip of it in the music world. That's enough to get by. 
Um, but yeah, so it, it's been an interesting journey. Um, and I, I guess without further ado, we should go ahead and jump on into it. Let's, let's do it. All right. Well, this is The Last Emperor, and we have a clip, so take a listen. be the new lord of 10,000 years. You will be the son of heaven. At the age of three, he ascended to the dragon throne. As a boy, he was the absolute ruler of Imperial China. Stop! The emperor will walk. So that was The Last Emperor. It is directed by Bernardo Bertolucci. Uh, it is written by Enzo Ungari, Mark Peplo, and Bernardo Bertolucci. The premise is the story of the final emperor of China. That's it. And <laughs> <I'm> sorry. <laughs> our cast includes John Lone, Joan Chen... Peter O'Toole, Ru Cheng Ying, Victor Wong, uh, Dennis Dunn, and Carrie Hiroyuki Tagawa. Um, so for a little bit of historical backstory, and it's very, it's, it's a pretty big, broad, dense history. Um, that I'm not going to try and, and give you all of the deets on. But, essentially, um, the last emperor of China, as he is referred to, was a man named Puyi. Uh, he was installed by his, like, grandmother, essentially. Um, is that who that woman was? Grand it's like his grandmother or his, like, aunt of some kind. But she's like an older maternal figure who kind of like was a little shady. She was a concubine who ended up having the only son of one emperor. And that elevated her status. And once she got that power, she like kicked out this council of people that were running the country for a little while. Um, she potentially murdered like one or two emperors. She had installed, if I'm not mistaken, Puyi's father as emperor, also as a child. And then when he got older, you know, she thought that he would just do whatever she said, and he wanted to do reforms, and he ended up getting shipped into exile. Which oh. is also, I think, part of why mom couldn't come with Puyi to the kingdom. Well, and that's also why his father, like... Is not a yeah, part of the picture. Literally at all. <laughs> and so... um then she did kind of the same thing, you know? She, like, went and picked this other kind of, like, boy emperor. Um, he grew up at a very young age as emperor. Um, he was apparently a little bit of a sadist. And the movie doesn't necessarily get into that. We can talk about how the movie depicts him. Um, but apparently he would, on occasion order certain servants to be, uh, violently beaten to, like, a, to a pulpy mess. Um, oh. 
That is not in the movie. <laughs> wow. And um, he ended up, in the movie, you know, they have this passing comment of, like, he abdicated the throne. But apparently, like, all of his abdications were, like, forcibly um, the entire thing of, like, this general figure being the president of the nation that crops up in the movie was due to the fact that while he was emperor, a rebellion broke out. And normally the police and, and the law were not, like, too, too plussed about rebellion. But this one ended up spreading to, like, 14 provinces. And uh, the general at the time came to the, the family and was like, look, you can either take this negotiation bribe sort of thing that we've laid out for you, um... Or we can go to war, but, you know, I can't guarantee that we're going to win the war. So it would probably be smarter if we just took this payout. Okay. And so everyone in the family, like, agreed to the payout. Um, and then a little while later, that guy ended up, you know, sort of making himself president. And when rebellion broke out again, he went to war with those people and crushed them. So it definitely seems like uh, like he was angling a little bit for a power grab. Mm-hmm. Um, he did, of course, have the the English teacher come in. Um, he was eventually, you know, run out. A lot of the events of the movie are pretty spot on. Mm-hmm. Um, but what the movie does neglect to discuss is kind of his role in some of those decisions. And also, um, how brutal he was. He was apparently, it wasn't just that the, the, the next time he's emperor was kind of tough. It was apparently a full on authoritarian state where the Japanese military had like entire control of that thing and Chinese and Manchu and Korean people were subjected to like a, a poverty class, um, in the movie, there's the, the death of the baby via, like, injection. Yeah. Supposedly, in real life, his wife's child that she had with another man um, was thrown while still alive. A little bit of a violence warning here. Um, into a, a boiling pot. Huh! Um, so, he was not a nice guy. Um... And so I guess kind of with some of this history in mind, and I can talk a little bit more about some of his other history that, that sprouts up as we go. But uh, with that in mind, dear, what did you think of The Last Emperor? Man, they polished the hell out of this thing. <laughs> wow. And I thought that, like, he was, he sucked in the movie, you know. But, like, they really paint him as as this kind of, like, you know, I guess, like, arrested development kind of dude who's been able to do whatever he wants for his entire life and then can't and doesn't understand why and ends up like befriending the wrong people and getting into the wrong stuff in order to just like get his lifestyle back but like just from this brief history lesson wow 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 did they 
they just yeah they they polished the hell out of this thing. We just they, buff this out real quick. They they took all of like the really really nasty parts because there's this point where like he's in well you know the 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 present part of the the story. You know, we, we, as we talked about earlier, most of the movie is given to us in flashback while he's in jail in like a, like a reform prison, basically. Like they're trying to like get him to confess to his crimes. It's kind of the, the Chinese equivalent of that time is like a gulag. It's like a corrective prison. Okay. Um, and so like we get these like flashes to the, to the present and you know, he's he's reforming and he ends up becoming like a delightful old man gardener at the end. And you're like, gosh, you know, with with just the movie in mind, you're like, gosh, this man was was really not that bad, guys. And well, at least he, he got better in the end. Yay. But like, I don't know. Fuck him. <laughs> I think I think that that's my takeaway. Um, oh, gosh, I really wanted this to be. I guess more historically accurate, kind of like how Patton had its liberties for sure. But for the most part, like that was that guy. That was his words. The, this was how he was. Everybody who had interacted with him was like, no, he is Patton right now. Like there's there's no denying how extremely accurate this portrayal is. Or like now I have to I have to rethink my score of this movie, I think. Now knowing that history is even if the events and the time and all of that stuff are are accurate, I thought that, you know, of the two movies, I was like, oh, this movie is more closer to patent than it is to, to, um, oh gosh, I just forgot the name of the other one now. Um, Titanic in the Sahara. English Patient. The English Patient, that's correct. Um, oh gosh, wow, uh. Well, the movie itself. Let me let me let me let me go back a little bit. The movie itself, I I enjoyed. I enjoyed watching it. I thought it was an interesting story. I am still pissed that it is not entirely accurate, but that's a me thing now um, that I have to live with. <laughs> um, but no, I I really enjoyed getting to watch a movie that had a like ninety nine percent ethnic cast. Mm-hmm. It is so refreshing especially you know even nowadays it's so difficult to get just a a whole bunch of people who aren't white together to make a movie it's a bummer that it is a a movie about the fact that they are chinese and all this stuff you know they couldn't just be people but that's we're getting there guys we're getting there um but no i thought that the acting was really great i loved our lead i don't know his um name off the top of my head do you mean the older Puyi? Yeah, the one who plays, like, most of him. Yeah, John Lone. John Lone was fantastic. I thought that he was incredibly um, charming and interesting. Um, I don't know anything about his career, but I think that he did a, an absolutely superb job in he this He was movie. the bad guy in Rush Hour 2. He was the bad guy in Rush Hour 2? Yeah, Ricky Tan. Ah, that's a horrible name. Mm-hmm. Um, Ricky Ticky Tabby. <laughs> um, but I thought that he did a phenomenal job. I thought that um, the the women who played his wives were really interesting. I really enjoyed a lot of this movie. Honestly, like, I, I'm not really familiar with Peter O'Toole's, like, career. But, like, for the most part, he was just kind of there for me. 
while the story kind of unraveled around him. Like, he definitely wasn't a big character, at least, you know, in, in my personal viewing of this movie. Um, and it was kind of like a nice ride through history a little bit with um, from a different perspective, which I really enjoyed. Because nobody ever talks about, you know, I had never heard of this emperor. I never knew about his life. I thought it was great going from, you know, 1908 when he was a he was a kid being uh, crowned emperor at three years old to to his eventual death in 1967 and getting to get to a whole chunk of history that from a perspective that I've just never heard of or seen before because of the fact that there are so many other things happening that we usually focus on more. Um, yeah, no, I'm, I've got a lot of thoughts about this movie. I didn't mean to. <laughs> no, you're totally fine. Um, so first off, I agree with you. I think that it's, you know, you take... You take a standard issue American world history class in, like, high school. And it's, like, pyramids in Egypt, ancient Rome, the start of Europe, world wars, you know, America a little bit, you know, starting in that. And and then you usually do some sort of brief overview of, like, the last 15 years. No. And that feels like the standard sort of plate thing. Oh, yeah. We get, like, the American Revolution, <laughs> you know, real good. We get, like, the Civil War, real good. We get the first war happened. And, and then, then we, the second war. And war. then the second war. And we spend, like, a whole semester to a year on the second war. But we don't really talk about... There's no connectivity. There's no global perspective, you know, to some of these things. And, like, I didn't know, you know, when the last emperor of China was. So, you know, the fact that he was alive running up all the way to the point that, that you know, Martin Luther King was alive... It's just crazy. Yeah, you know, it's one of those things that that helps connect history in interesting ways um, and gives a real perspective about how things shaped out the way that they did. And, like, Japan at that time, you know, they had had... China and Japan had had a conflict before. Then they went into their second bit of conflict, which leads us right into World War II, so then, of course, when they fell, because he got embroiled with it, he fell. And so it's it's this really interesting history and perspective. You know, it goes back to, like, the episode that we did with, um, with Mother India mm -hmm. and with the land, where you get to go and you get to experience a different type of, of history, a different perspective on history. Um... I think the cast does tremendous, you know, regardless of whether or not this is 100% historically accurate, I think it, I think it exactly does what it wanted to do, which was tell this story of isolation, about the, 
uh, impermanence of certain things and the sort of folly, and this is what I was talking about earlier, the folly and the arrogance of thinking that certain things can last forever. Mm-hmm. Because he was the last emperor, and then here comes Mao Zedong, and, you know, there went Mao Zedong. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I think that it's a really interesting look at all of those sorts of things. Um, it's a dense movie. Um, it's two hours and 43 minutes, uh, so about nine minutes shorter than Patton. Um, but no intermission, unlike Patton. Oh, I gotta love that intermission, <laughs> man. That thing popped up and I was like, perfect stopping point. <laughs> and so I think that, um, there's so much to this story, there's so much to his life that I definitely think that it is something that could be explored again, but I think that for what uh, Bertolucci really set out to do, I think that he hit the nail on the head, which was also to kind of present the circumstances that were going on, not even around him actively, but how they were creeping into his daily life. You know, Mm -hmm. we never really get deep explanations for the geopolitics of that time, at that time. Um, but we see how it creeps in and forces him into certain positions and pushes him into certain places. And I think that it was really, really interesting from that perspective. No, I think that the movie does a really good job of um, understanding where he's coming from and kind of connecting the dots of you know, cause and effect of where he, how his story leads to him being imprisoned for, for 10 years. Um, and I thought that they did a, I thought that uh, Bertolucci did a great job of really, you know, crafting this entire story, really condensing a lot, a lot of information into, into under three hours. And, you know, that can, has to be applauded because this, it was, that's a lot. It's a lot to put an entire life into into a film. Um, I just, I and I also understand why they kind of sensitized a lot of the the events of his life. You know, especially for the time period. You know, you still have to sell this movie. Well, and also he apparently did get. Chinese government approval to film in Be- to film in Beijing, oh. and use some of these places for filming. Oh, that's nice. And so I wouldn't be surprised if a little bit of that came with sensitizing the story just enough to make you know. it a little bit more passable. No, yeah, I get that. Um, my my note for the movie is time. Time is such an important thing especially in, you know, telling somebody's life. It's a good way to set the the audience in what they should expect from time, from from what's happening, you know. And I think that this movie was sometimes great. 
and other times. I had no idea what year it was supposed to be. How much time had passed. Exactly. And it was it was really disorienting for a little bit, especially when we're going through his his younger years up until the point where we get our, our main lead as 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 adult um Puyi. And it was yeah, it was just very hard to to keep a keep a hold on it because you know you you change so much from being a three-year-old to being a 21 year old or however old he was supposed to be at that party um in the in the 20s 30s era um which is a is a quick fix you know give me a little give me a little title card at the bottom that just tells me what year it is and how old my lead is supposed to be and I think that would be more helpful because I had to really focus on dialogue in order to figure out at what point in time we were. And sometimes that was like 20 minutes into a scene. And so I just personally, I felt it was very disorienting. No, absolutely. Um, I'll, I'll say one thing and then we'll, we'll jump into a little different part of the discussion. Um, you mentioned Peter O'Toole. I think that his part is minimal, but I think that he brings all of the warmth and presence that he needs. Mm -hmm. And I think that if it hadn't been an actor as established and capable as Peter O'Toole, it wouldn't have hit the mark. Um, it's kind of almost like uh, Richard Harris with Dumbledore oh, in the so first good. two. Does he get as much screen time as Dumbledore, you know, could get or would get in later films? Eh. But he brings everything that the character needs moment to moment, scene to scene. And even though Puyi was not necessarily um, perfect or good, um, in real life, Reginald Johnston... Um, who Peter O'Toole played, had a lot of, on a certain level, pity for Puyi. Because at a very early point, he realized that he was being um, lied to, that he was being um, sort of allowed to be this, um, because that also kind of allowed people to fleece him a lot of the people that were working under him were stealing, you know, from the palace, uh, from him, that kind of thing. And, like, I've got all sorts of qualms with royalty and that sort of thing, but I think that he saw someone who was kind of left to flail violently sometimes um, in order to serve what they saw as their own gain. No, and I can And I, I think Peter O'Toole brings that to the performance, even though it's very minimal. I completely agree with that. Um, and I do, you know, for this character in this film, feel sorry for him because his upbringing um, did perpetuate his, his eventuality. You know, he was always going to be this this ruthless, stubborn, childish figure because he was, you know, he had never been disciplined how do you tell the emperor no? Are you going to spank the emperor? After also telling them that you that they can do whatever they want and that there are no rules, but then you can't then imp 
and place rules upon this person because that's it's contradictory. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, their word is law, but also that's the problem with, I think, that him becoming emperor so soon in life. You know, if maybe if if Granny or whomever she was had had lived for a few years longer, he would have been able to live as a commoner for a longer period of time. And instead of, you know, from three years on afterwards to just be able to do whatever he wanted, I I think that maybe we would have had a different outcome. Um, no, for sure. Um, and by the way, I also do agree with you. I think John Lone did a great job. I think Joan Shen did a great job. Joan Shen broke my heart as oh, his wife. God, she was fantastic. She's stunning. Every part of this movie was like just beautiful to watch. Um, no, absolutely. And and you know, this is also before we get to the digital age, this is when you had, you know, the term a cast of thousands. This is when you had that. You had hundreds of people filling environments, filling sets all of them in costume, you know, all of the set decoration going to the end of the room. Yes, I mean, you could tell that these buildings that they were in were were huge, and and the rooms were just impeccable. It was just, it was, uh, to your point, it was just a, a feast of a movie to watch. And nowadays, eh, we've got the five actors we need, digital the rest of the crowd, you know? <laughs> feel about like movies like dune where like you know for a fact that that entire planet is fake uh dune is surprisingly real ah whatever um but going back to the movie i also wanted to bring you up to a point you know you talked about time feeling so liquid somehow and this movie is largely told in flashback do you think that hurt or helped it, or would you have preferred a linear version of the story? Or would a linear version of the story had its own drawbacks that you think would have diminished that story? Hmm. Honestly, I think that just starting from the beginning of his life and going to the end of his story would have would have been more impactful instead of this constant jumping because the present itself held it 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 wasn't held to as high a standard as the past was and i think that in order to level out the playing field we have to take time and and start from the beginning and go to the end because also i think that this movie assumes a lot of the audience of of their knowledge of not only Chinese history, but just world history in general. And I think that for me, just going from like 1908 further out, because we start out when he's like getting off of this train and he's like trying to kill himself and he ends up getting arrested with the rest of um, these people who have, you know, aided and abetted the war to some degree um, on the on the wrong side of history, and it's really I you don't know who this man is. You don't know why you should care about him. You just know that people are people know who he is, and 
now he's getting arrested. And I think that it would have been more and more impactful to to see that journey and to once we finally hit that in the movie's timeline of him, you know, siding with the the Japanese and all of these bad things happening and that that super climactic moment of him, you know, fleeing that happens in like the third act would have been more interesting if then after that we got to see him on the train getting off and all of the things that we saw of him getting reformed and realizing how his life had negatively impacted so many people and like finally having like an understanding of his impact on on the world as you know in that time um yeah and I think that would have also like cleared up a lot of my like jumping through time issue because he's telling this story um retroactively where they're trying to be like you know you're guilty they're interrogating him and he's just telling his life story basically because that was the assignment that they were given day one of prison day you know they were like all right write down your life story and we'll see whether or not you're guilty because of this narrative um yeah and I think that that would have cleared up a lot of that for me as well because honestly then we could have skipped ahead a lot because we've already seen all of that stuff and we I wouldn't have to you know to re-talk about it again and we could have had a lot of his like um his interrogation moments closer together and then end up with him old man gardening and that would have you know completed the completed the cycle of his life instead of yeah jumping in and out of who's playing him how old is he supposed to be what year are we in you know which is which is a lot of how i felt about this movie no i think that's all totally fair i think the only benefit that we get from some of the the flashback element of it is the fact that there are a few moments where his story is told a little bit more through the Reginald Johnston perspective, where we do, for a brief period, get a little bit of an outsider-looking-in point of view. And I think that's probably the only benefit that we get from the flashback. And we probably could have worked that in with the linear perspective as well. Um, But I think that that's probably the only true benefit that we get from the structure that we have, such as it is. I get that, um, because of the fact that, like, the, the guy who's interrogating him has Reginald's book. Yeah, he, he like, goes and, and one of the people at the re-education camp gets a copy of Reginald's book and starts to read it sort of independently outside of what we're getting out of Puyi's account of his own life. Yes, um... Or if we were going to do this, I think, you know, this kind of like backtracking kind of storytelling, I think that then I would have wanted it to be him looking back on his life near the end of his life instead of it being this time of him being in prison. Mm-hmm. You know, he's an old man and he's thinking back on all the things that he's done as he sees this man who he's known, you know, getting carted through the streets as a as a traitor 
who was the one who told him what it was to be a, a countryman. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that that would have been just as just as easy to do narratively and would have helped with a a lot of my time wibbliness yeah um for my last little little bit regarding him as an old man apparently in his twilight years once he was released from prison um you know he did work as a street sweeper then a gardener and on top of that He was paraded around and, you know, brought in front of dignitaries and traveling politicians and and things like that. Largely as a symbol for the power of the Mao Zedong Communist Party, the effectiveness of its re-education, and the novelty of the last emperor sort of like brought down to humble gardener. And I think that that is also a, an interesting element that the story could have played with more. Mm-hmm. Because he apparently did very much enjoy his later years, partially because even though it was under communist rule, it was the only time that he wasn't necessarily being actively daily manipulated by people no he could do what he wanted when he wanted it was a nice simple life mm-hmm. um it's a it kind of reminded me honestly of a you know the 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 covid lifestyle where everything kind of shut down and people were like i think i'll try baking for a little bit and like that's kind of what it reminded me of it was just like maybe i'll do a simpler life where i don't live in a city anymore or drive a car and i just have a garden and i was like this is this is exactly that for him and he found his peace and so i think that it could have been interesting to explore some of his release years better but i think that that is also the result of the fact that this was a movie, um, even back in the in the 80s, I'm sure that a studio was probably very resident, uh, reticent to do a um, over three-hour movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, this is the kind of thing that today you could probably do a, a very high-budget miniseries on him. Mm-hmm and really explore it but i think for what the movie has for what the movie aims to do i think it's incredibly effective um if you had to rate it out of uh uh 10 or out of five what would you give it oh what do i give this movie um i'm gonna give this movie um a four because i also thought of something else that i i wish they had done a little i think this movie was just a a feast for the the eyes you know with the with some few things that really needed to be fixed but one thing in particular is i do not speak chinese and so i wish that there were more just like general like whenever they showed a sign yeah, I wanted to know. I felt like I was missing out on a lot of information as a viewer, as an English-only speaker. 
even though the entire movie was spoken in English, there were times where it was like, all right, they're going to sing a song now and we don't get to know what it's, what they're going to sing a song. They're going to show a sign, you know, they're going to do something. And I was like, man, especially at that ending point where he was like with the communist movement. And I was like, what do their signs say? What are they singing? I want to know. And they were like, no, you don't need any of this stuff. I was like, boo. But I think that this movie is very, very interesting, and I would definitely watch it again. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with a four. Okay. <laughs> um, I think I might go four and a half. Okay. Um, I was I was pretty taken with it. I thought that it was interesting. Um, I thought it was thoughtful. Um, and I. I look forward to um, re-watching it and, and also expanding my knowledge on the history. I did a little bit of a research dive, and, and I, I think that I would like to know more. You know, this is definitely, you know, between like this and our international month, um, you know, it, it shines a light on the lack of knowledge. And I, I, it's this kind of movie that makes me want to go and learn more. No, yeah. Um, you know, if I had to make a, a timeline of history based off of movies that I watched, this would definitely be a part of it because there's nothing else like it. And I think that it does a, a, a damn good job of, of telling me, you know, concisely a history that I've, I've, would have never known or heard of otherwise no for sure um well with that said i guess we'll go ahead and jump into our next film and this is the english patient and we have a clip so take a listen winner of nine academy awards including best supporting actress best director and best picture of the year they found him in the desert, a man with no name. I think I was a pilot. And no country. Anybody remotely foreign is suddenly a spy. A man they called the English patient. Why is that the time to keep me alive? Because I'm a nurse. So that was the English patient. Uh, it is directed by Anthony Minghella. It is written by Anthony Minghella, uh, based on a novel of the same name by Michael Ondaatje. I'm sorry if I'm saying that name wrong. It stars Ray Fiennes, Juliette Binoche, Willem Dafoe, Kristen Scott Thomas, Naveen Andrews, and Colin Firth. And the premise is at the close of World War II, a young nurse tends to a badly burned plane crash victim. His past is shown in flashbacks, revealing an involvement in a fateful love affair. Um, so I looked a little bit, I guess I'll, I'll take it away if I may. Sure. I looked a little bit into the, um, into the background of this movie. And it's, um... The, the book is largely told um, uh, in a, in a nonlinear timeline. 
jumping around between perspectives and time. And according to editor Walter Murch, um, the book has a little bit more of a balance between the two love stories, uh, the one that takes place in the past and the one that takes place in the present. Oh, we were gypped! And so, um, that's apparently one of the big differences is that they make it A, more linear, and B, focus a little bit more on one of the two dynamics more than the other. Um, without getting, you know, too deep into it. Uh, as far as how I felt about this, The English Patient is one of those that, for some reason, and maybe I'm wrong about this, I feel like as this movie aged, people felt like it was one of those undeserving Best Picture winners. Hmm. Um... And for me personally, I actually was pretty, I personally was pretty pleased with, um, with the movie overall. I, I think that to a degree it did better with the, um, with the, the need for a flashback better than, um, the Last Emperor did. I don't think, though, that I still liked it as much as The Last Emperor. Um, I think that it's very well done, very prestigious, incredibly well acted. But I also think that it's um, a little bit safer and a little bit more plate. Um, I get that. The performances are remarkable, truly remarkable. Um, but I, I, you know, I've I've seen this kind of movie before. <laughs> well, I mean, I you remember earlier when I couldn't remember the name of the literal movie that we were discussing right now, um, that I called it the the Titanic of the Sahara, and it's not in the Sahara. It's not. But it, it might as well be. And it's totally Titanic. You know, it's an epic love story told in flashbacks. No, yeah. Um, so, like, um, dear, dear, what did you, what did you think of The English Patient? Um, I agree. I think that this movie, I, I've, gosh, this movie just felt so familiar. And it was, it, it was interesting. Like, I loved watching it, but also... And I think that the performances were fantastic, but it's just something about watching a movie set in a country where the people are not from and, and just watching a whole bunch of white people in Africa. It's just a weird thought, you know, it's, it's, uh, why, you know? Well, and like, we're also running, you know, to your point, we're running headlong into the fact that like, this is still the time where like a whole bunch of English explorers were running around to other countries and and effectively, you know, looting and grave robbing the, the valuable artifacts to then bring back to British and European museums. 
Yeah. For display. And just, number one, ew. But, um, besides that, I thought that the, the, the story was really interesting. I wish that we got more of the present. I thought that our female lead, the nurse, was just amazing. I thought that she, she did a phenomenal job. Um, I, I loved her and, and Kip. I thought that they were so sweet and I loved their love story. And then they were like, oh, but forget that for this dude who's, who's literally having a love affair with some other guy's wife. And I was just like, this is a weird story that we're telling right now. Like, is this, is this something that I should aspire to? Should I also have a love affair with some other dude's wife because of reasons? Like, because my love is more more interesting than his and also I thought that it, like the moment where she was like oh gosh we should probably not do this anymore and then he got really aggressive with her I was like I don't know why I should be rooting for this character and yeah um so <laughs> there are just a lot of things like little little nitpicky things for me where that I was like I don't know why this is where we're leaning all of our focus to um I liked the unraveling of of what he did remember from the crash and you know I thought that um our lead Voldemort what is his name Ray Fiennes I thought that Ray Fiennes did a great job I think that um I think that the character was was very complicated and I think that he did a fantastic job of me forgetting you know that he was playing this character and I just could got to watch this movie and I wanted to know what was going to happen next because this was the, a soap opera of a movie plot wise where just every you know t 10 to 30 minutes we we would go and be like wait everything's changed again what's what's happening now it was you know just constantly developing into into something very interesting and then there's Willem Dafoe in there surprise for me because I had no idea that he was in here until he showed up with his little like glove mitts surprise on. Willem is the best Willem honestly yeah and I it was just it was just <laughs> it was just great um but I I felt like I didn't know my people in the present at all and I, I think that that really hindered the movie a lot for me because other than the nurse and, like, her perspective, it was really, like, a, just a bunch of throwaway military people and, and issues and the, there was a war happening and we all know the war, so let's yada yada back to this guy exploring Cairo for a little bit. And I was just, I felt really gypped of a, of honestly a, a more interesting love story because I think that at one point in the movie I looked at you and I was like why how did they fall in love because out of nowhere it was like a light switch hit both of them and they were like I've always loved you and I was like because you guys looked at each other lustfully like I don't when did this become a, a passionate love affair where I couldn't imagine you with anybody else well, and it's it's interesting that you mentioned that because I watched a little interview with, with the editor, Walter Murch, and he said that the script, again, like I said, heavily shifted to that love affair. So I, I guess in the book, it's even faster and more vague, I guess, in how it builds. Which is funny because I, I, I still, with all of the time that we spent with it, it still felt like 
When did this happen? Why? The, the, from the moment she showed up, he was like doing sexy eyes at her. And she was like, ew, I've got a husband over here. And then like two scenes later, she does that whole like monologue about the, the woman uh, the, 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 the old queen who was stripping mm -hmm. and some dude was seeing her from, from beyond and she was like, stop staring at me or come. Or kill my husband. Uh, yeah. And then she's like, yeah. And then he kills his, her, you know, her husband and they become married and king and blah, 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 etc. And I was like, oh, so this is the plot of this movie in a nutshell. I was like, somehow all of this is going to happen. And it, it happened almost instantly and I was like what why because they had that one night in the car buried in sand where they were like he like touched her hair real pretty like and she was like nobody's ever touched me like this even though her husband was in love with her and like would shout it from the rooftops how much like he truly adored this woman and this like mysterious man comes along and she's like no I'm more interested in him it just didn't make any sense to me whatsoever and I really really enjoyed our our present our nurse and like that whole thing and like Kip's friend who was he it didn't make his death any more impactful because I don't even know that character's name and I felt like we really got like hammered down with like a very almost generic love story that didn't really make any sense that was pretty much all fueled by by a passion and and lust that the the audience didn't really get to experience which was such a bummer because we saw like this budding romance happen on the other side and they were like push that away for this weird affair that we were gonna fantasize about it felt like we were watching a movie version of a of a romance novel no that's pretty fair and like Anthony Minghella apparently felt like the whole book was about the futility of of nationality and borders and who are we, who am I, you know, and, and largely about identity. But I'm not sure really that the movie ever touched on those tones. No, and because I think, it was so dick deep in this love affair. And I think part of the other problem with that is that they wanted to almost... And maybe I'm misreading this. You can tell me if I'm totally wrong. Okay. I feel like they almost use the present and the flashbacks to kind of create a mystery. Yeah. But the problem is, we already know it's Ray Fiennes. Yes. It's very blatantly him. He's not disfigured enough for it to be a question. Yes. Of, like, is it Colin Firth in that makeup? Is it Ray Fiennes in that makeup? It's Rafe. So, like, it feels like they're trying to create this big question mark. Yeah. And some of the reveal is a little tragic. I was a little bit, you know, very, uh, you know, it did impact me, you know, and make me a little bit sad in its ending. But I feel like it didn't, I feel like it's trying to create this mystery. And I think that some of the issue about like identity and boundaries and why they do or don't matter, where he's like, I finally just became an English patient, is also undermined by the fact that in the novel, he's Hungarian. Is he really? And I don't think 
that it comes, even if you wanted to tell me that he went and had, like, a Western education and got a little bit more of a Western accent, but I think the fact that we cast distinctly British icon Rafe Fiennes as a Hungarian. Well, that's how I feel about the, the beginning part where they're, like, you know, taking care of him, and they're like, well, what's your name? Where are you from? And he's like, I could be German. I could be this. Who knows what I am? I don't remember a thing. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You're British. <laughs> you sound like every other British person here. And I, and I would be baffled, baffled, if the man who was, like, writing down your, your information was like maybe he is German because you don't have a lick of an accent and just because you can speak German does not mean that you are German. What do you mean your amnesia gave you this accent? That's crap. And so I think that part of the other big problem with this movie is honestly, even though I think he did a good job, by casting Ray Fiennes, but also not making it more ambiguous who he is. They were all British and they were like, mm, here we don't have to talk about borders or anything. Like this throwaway line later, you know, when they're like in Cairo being like, oh gosh, you know, here we can just be whoever the hell we want to be. And back home we have to be people with with fences between our countries and blah, 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 etc. I was like, what are you talking about? You're all British. And so I don't think, I think that part of the problem is the casting of Rafe. Yes. Um, and, you know, what's, what's interesting is that both this and the, both this and The Last Emperor use this sort of, like, book as a, as a storytelling device. Mm -hmm. But I will say that I think the book is more beneficial here, if only because the book of his copy of Herodicus has a certain amount of personality and actual, like, textual moments that link us back into the past more than in The Last Emperor. Well, I also think, um, going off of that, things that I did enjoy, I, I agree. I think that uh, it, was, it was just an effortless transition back into the past, where it, whether it be, you know him him dreaming and then we would come back to the present and he would wake up and realize that it was all you know just a dream or again. willem dafoe feeding him like certain words that triggered certain memories no yeah or you know a smell or a sound or something that would like bring him back in his in his very um dying state <laughs> that would bring him back to this story um i just felt like the story itself if it hadn't been for all of the amazing acting would have just fallen flat. Mm -hmm. Like I just, I just don't, I didn't believe it. And I, I felt so bad for, you know, Colin Firth being cucked in this movie because I just, I also felt like he did a phenomenal job. I thought that his character was more interesting and had more, um, uh, what, what am I, more ebbs and flows and, and emotion and, and, you know, I thought that things impacted him far more than impacted our lead, you know, other than the fact that it was Ray Fiennes. It just didn't, he himself was very disconnected and very, you know, like an aloof character, but like not in like an interesting way. It was like, I think that this guy might be a scumbag. And then out of nowhere, she was like, I've always loved you, even though you stalked me in the bazaar one day. And I was like, just why? 
I will say this, I did enjoy getting to see, there are a few moments where you get to see Rafe laugh and smile or be drunk. And I feel like lately he's gotten a little bit pigeonholed into these stiff upper lip, rigid, you know, chin up British characters. It was weird watching him make out with that chick though. Like, I don't know what it was about them. Like I understood that they were in love. I don't know what her name is. Kristen Scott Thomas. Perfect. Kristen Scott Thomas. I'm sorry that I referred to her as that chick, but like, it's kind of how her character was. Like she was like a very, very, um, uppity, just chick of this movie. Um, but watching them, watching them make out really close up, I was like, this is just an odd visual. Like, some people you can watch kiss and you go, oh, this is good. But I was just like, I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but it was, but going back to what I said, it was nice to see him a little bit outside of, I feel like, the type that he has been so cornered into lately. Yes, but also because of this character was very, like, pinned up and, um, not very, like, social, of a character that like getting to see the things that made him spark up were were such good moments because like watching this movie this character does not smile a lot he's very like under you know underwritten almost at a certain extent especially with these flashbacks to the past like the the present him talks all the time and they are constantly saying how much that he's saying but we never got to actually hear ray sing but that's that's another note um but yeah, no, watching him like really like big smile was like a, a good... Or you know when she starts realizing that he's teasing her and she starts hitting him with the pillow and he's, you know, laughing, you know, as, oh, as yeah. like he's getting slapped by her and stuff like that. Great. Great moments. Um, oh gosh, you, you started talking about that and it made me instantly think of like the, the tub scene where like we get to see like her fully naked, but we don't really get to see him fully naked. But then I have to talk about the time period and body hair for a real quick second. Because, like, sure, she's got, you know, lady bit hair, but she has no, like, hair anywhere else. And I think that that's completely false. Especially given how they had been living this kind of rugged life. You know, if you told me that, like, this was her in London, where she maybe had access to a razor, okay. But, like, her all the way out in Egypt. I don't really think that she's shaving her pits like that, guys. Like, you're you're lying to my face in this moment right here and now. Um, Which I think is just so weird. I find it so odd that we're all like, oh, God, we we cannot show armpit hair, but we'll show, like, a full bush. Because also that's better than the alternative of no bush, and then that's just offensive to, to the eyeballs, apparently. And you're just... It's just a weird thing. And the fact that, again, it was... This movie was very, yeah, it's very of the times where it was like, yeah, we'll show a, a woman fully naked, front, back, whatever, side, pose, nipple, titty, all day long. But they're like, we refuse. To show a dong. We didn't even see it. A like, male buttock. Not at all. We, the, the, the nakedest that man got, you could have told me that he was going to go swimming. Because we didn't once see a, a damn thing. And I just think that that's just just so strange. Just a weird thing. I think that not showing it makes it more, like, odd. Yeah. You know, like, these people are are having sex. Like, this is the plot. Is, is these people have a literal love affair. And you're like, no, but we're, we're going to show casual, 
female nudity, but nothing from the other's perspective. And I just, just, just why? Just, you're bringing my attention more to it, the fact that you refuse to show it, which is something I guess that I will give to Game of Thrones. They, they did too, they did it too much and unnecessarily, but at least they did it. No, absolutely. Um, before we, well, I actually, I'll go ahead and, and I'll, I'll, I'll jump into this. So if you had to rate, um, The Last Emperor out of five, or not The Last, The English <laughs> Patient out of five, what would you give it? I mean, I can rate it again if you want. Um, okay, let's see. The English Patient. I enjoyed watching this movie. I enjoyed, you know, beginning to end. I thought it was a really, really good movie. I understand why it was picked. Now, with that being said, it is almost entirely just another love story. And uh, I will give this movie a... I'll give this movie a three and a half. I'll go three and a half as well. Um, so I forgot to, to bring this up with the last one. Um, so The Last Emperor beat out for Best Picture Broadcast News, Fatal Attraction, Hope and Glory and Moonstruck. Uh, and Bernardo Bertolucci won for Best Director as well. Um, however, what is definitely a sign of the times and is also something that we see that currently happens in the Oscars, not a single one of the actors of um, The Last Emperor were nominated in any of the acting categories. Which is a crime! Just because they're not white does not mean that they are not deserving of recognition. Well, and it goes to the issue of, like, how, like, none of the actors of Parasite, even though Parasite won Best Picture, none of those actors were nominated. And we have another thing this year where, you know, certain foreign films are getting recognition, but no foreign actors are being... Uh, Drive My Car is this year's. But no foreign actors are being recognized for their performance in that film. I am tired and of being considered a part of a minority that doesn't exist anymore. Because technically, people of color are the majority of people on the planet. And they are so underrepresented to actually get equality. It would, it would literally be like what how many people are nominated like six five or six mm -hmm. it would be like one white person to like everybody else being a person of color so i think it's just so baffling but that's also because of the medium itself is is so white centric and that's why i think it's so hilarious that we had a whole movie set in africa based on english people yeah, and, and I think that's also why it's a little bit of a shame, especially with The English Patient, that Kip got so underwritten, especially since his name feels almost derivative of Rudyard Kipling, who is a uh, an author that they bring up in regards to his view on India. And so I feel like there's a lot of really interesting things that we could have done in the present with the Kip character, with him being this, he was this so guy good. surrounded. Yeah, Navina Andrews did a great job. Um, and so I think that that's a real shame. Um, as far as the English patient at the Oscars go, um, there's definitely one movie that I feel like should have beaten it. So it won, uh, Best Picture, it also won Best Director. That's very common. It is a very strange occurrence to split it. It's a very odd occurrence. <laughs> it was a good picture, but that director, eh, 
Um, it happened, I think the last time it happened was Argo. Argo won Best Picture, Ang Lee won Best Director for Life of Pi. Good! And Life I of Pi just should have won Best Picture. I love Argo, but Life of I Pi think just should have won. I think won. that also you are correct in that statement. It's another one of these things where I was like, again, why? Mm-hmm. Why, why are we going... Because Argo at a certain level glorified the Hollywood industry. But well, that's beside the Well, they have point. to pat themselves on the back for existing. Um, the movie that I think should have won over The English Patient, and I'm sure that there are plenty of people who would agree, but whatever, it's my podcast. Um, Fargo. You're telling Fargo me that it's not nominated. Jerry Maguire. <laughs> um, however, honestly, if we're talking about, like, just the merits of a love story, I think that Jerry Maguire is probably more successful but that's neither here nor there. Um, for me, I think Fargo really should have been the winner. Um, the Coens are incredible filmmakers. Fargo is an incredible film. Frances McDormand won Best Leading Actress. Um, however, Juliette Binoche did win Best Supporting Actress for The English Patient. Oh, um, she was... Um, Hannah, she was, the nurse. Yes, she was so good. Juliette Binoche is wonderful. She was fantastic. She was she was my runaway from this like entire movie. And they were like, what if you you only get like uh, 30% of the movie if that. Um so that's kind of uh an overview on those. Going to a little bit of a of a tangential but similar idea. One movie that I think used the notion of a notebook, a book, what have you, a diary that also was told 90% in flashback, but I think it worked better for, for a more recent example, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Oh, good, good. I'm glad that you said that, and because my entire time I was over here being like, the notebook, the notebook, the notebook, no. the notebook. Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Because the notebook becomes the fill-in for the character that we don't have anymore. Um... You know, it's it's leading up to this moment of confession. Um, and it's very clear in when and how much time is traveling in between these points. No, because we also have, like, a very consistent narrative the entire time of actually hearing the words coming from the notebook itself, whereas, like, in this movie especially, it was his copy of this book that he had shoved in memories into kind of like a scrapbook but at the end of the day it was it was it was Herodicus yeah yeah that's that's what I was gonna say exactly that's that I hadn't forgotten the name of that book entirely at all <laughs> um and so for me I think that that's like a, a more successful example if I was going to rank the the three uses of like books to go back it's probably you know across a film that we didn't review and the two that we did it's probably Benjamin Button, English Patient, Last Emperor. Even though I think Last Emperor is overall a more successful film, I think that's probably the the weaker point for flashback usage and the usage of his book and all of these kinds of things. No, I get that. And um, to, just to clarify, um, I don't really actually like The Notebook, but I also think that The Notebook is just a better love story than The English Patient 
while also, you know, just hitting all of those same kind of emotional beats that the that the English patient was trying to do, I just think that it's more it's a more realistic, believable tale of of two people falling in love and what all that entails. But like also you were like talking about, you know, a book, a book over and over again and my brain was like, gosh, it's just the notebook. Like I knew you were going to say it and then you didn't. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so that's pretty much all that we have for the reviews. The only other thing that I wanted to, well, I mean, you know, we'll, we'll talk about a few more things, but one thing that I wanted to bring up was, um, so the Oscars, so far we've had a little bit of Oscar news almost every episode that we've been keeping track of. This week's big thing was in order to try and keep the telecast short and quote-unquote save the Oscars. And they do this, like, every year. Every new producer that they bring in is going to save the Oscars. Um, what does it need saving from itself? Low viewership. But as Zach mentioned in our last episode, that's never going to happen again. The Titanic viewership that they had is never going to come again. Well, yeah, because attention spans have gone from, well, you know, just what they used to be streaming to... Streaming tastes... You know, and and access to things, it's just it's all gone. See, that's that's what I'm saying though. Is is literal attention spans have have shrunk dramatically. We can't even make a full sentence. We have Twitter to 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 communicate with, and you only have a finite amount of characters that you can use. So to try and keep the telecast shorter in hopes that they get more viewers, they've decided to cut eight categories from the live telecast. Which is hilarious because they already cut categories already from the original live, you know, um, broadcast. Um, but then how dare you cut things, but then also still have three hosts. And I was, I, I posted a thing on Twitter. You can go and look at it. I posted my 23 thoughts on, uh, them not presenting, all 23. And if you want to vo voice your support for them presenting all 23, go on Twitter and, and talk about it with hashtag present all 23. Um, because apparently Twitter matters to them a lot. That's why they did the whole Twitter movie poll. Um, so the eight categories cut are documentary short film, film editing, uh, makeup and hairstyling, original score, Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> a movie without music and hair and editing is just a home film. Uh, production design, animated short, live action short film, and sound design. Um, so... Got rid of my follies. I'm done. Uh, first of all, as I mentioned in, if you go and look at the list that I posted... Taking away the short categories is one of the... First off, taking away any category's chance to shine is rude. But when it comes to the short categories, we're talking about profoundly independent filmmakers who saved and scrimped and worked their, their, their fingers to the bone to do something that is incredibly hard. Do you know how easy it is 
this is gonna sound insane. Do you know how easy it is to tell a story in three hours? Incredibly easy. You can just piss away time. Do you know how hard it is to tell a complete story in five minutes? And to especially go and look at like a documentary subject and go, I'm going to encapsulate not just, you know, information about what this is, but my perspective and my thesis on, on this topic in, in 20 minutes, even though it could easily take an hour. I can see you guys' time right now. A, get rid of two of your hosts. They're unnecessary. <laughs> I've saved you so much time right there. B, get rid of half of the host time and all of the talky talk. Yeah. Done. Boom. Honestly, fuck it. We could have Siri doing the whole thing. I do not care. Yeah. Honestly, it is ridiculous. It is absolutely offensive that you are willing to promote some categories over others, even though all of this work goes into making the thing that you consider the best. So I just... Without any of these categories, you would have people in whatever the hell they wanted to put on that day walk onto set, a blank stage probably, and just say some lines and then that's it. You have to do it like almost theater at that point. And it's just, it's just absolutely baffling to me that people are like, oh, but they're not Bradley Cooper, so therefore I don't give a damn about the person who hairsprayed him. Well, and... and a point that I make in in my list that I'll also make here, as films and their productions become more diverse, you got to think about who's also watching this telecast, right? Because the truth is, it's not Joe who watches the Super Bowl every year. It is people like me. I grew up watching Oscar ceremonies. And so as productions uh, and films become more diverse and more inclusive, younger generations are getting an opportunity to see someone that looks like them celebrate joyous victory, telecast to thousands, to millions of people where they get to go up and stake their claim and 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 celebrate and be genuine in their messaging and that's a powerful thing for a young person um you know who who falls on the lgbtq spectrum who is of color who just doesn't feel like they have a place to see someone you know go up and on that stage celebrate and they get to celebrate with them and as I, as I mentioned in my post, who are you to take that from someone? I couldn't, I couldn't have said it better. It just, it, it infuriates me to think that you're going to, you're willing to cut corners in, in, in one of the only things that we've gotten from this pandemic that is worth celebrating, you know, Film is is so so you know just transcendent. It can it can bring joy. It can bring sorrow. It can it can bring understanding to so many different people. And minimizing an entire field, getting rid of things that you consider 
worthless is is going to perpetuate that mindset in in future generations in current generations of people who will go well why should i care about the sound design i don't ever think about that or you know why should i care about hair and makeup especially when some of these some of these films are are 100% based around this whole entire path this whole entire um a, a career you know occupation you know you you literally can't do some films without them at all and I think that it is just ludicrous I did not grow up watching the Oscars but I did watch the Tonys and it would be absolutely ridiculous if somebody was like oh we're just gonna get rid of choreography we don't need best choreography get rid of set design get rid of lighting <laughs> we don't we don't need these things who cares it doesn't matter i don't need to see or hear or or do anything you know as long as my famous person is on stage it doesn't i don't give a damn and i just it is just absolutely offensive and then you're over here being like but what if we have three people who nobody nowadays really cares about no offense no offense to them i but they they literally put out feelers and they were like, please, somebody, anybody, I don't care if you're a trucker, please, can you host the Oscars? So frankly, if you're willing to go to those links, but then also jip a whole bunch of categories, you know, boo on you. And frankly, I feel like you're going to lose more people than you fucking gain making it shorter. Well, and if I'm not mistaken, I can't remember the exact... Um verbiage of the the theme this year but it's like it's desperation no the each oscars has a theme and apparently the theme for this year's and this is also why it makes it i think particularly a spit in the eye and egregious is like the theme for this year is essentially like unity in the movies shut up Shut the front door. This is a farce. Yeah. We're living in a farcical reality <laughs> right Unity now. in the movies, but you eight don't matter. Yeah, no, literally, unity. But also, like, eh, some of you can go. Mm-hmm. Like, how dare you? Um, and apparently they're all just going to get lumped into some sort of, like, pre-edited package. You know, like, they're going to do, they're going to do the ceremony. They're going to start a, the ceremony an hour before the telecast give those eight awards away, and then while the rest of the ceremony is happening, have an editor go throw together this quick little package. But I can watch the entire Super Bowl. And you're also going to, another thing that can be cut, in my opinion, is the stupid Twitter poll. You know, if we want to talk about things that are eating up time, there are going to be two moments in this telecast that are Because they're desperate! <laughs> So like it's it's ridiculous. This is just it just it's just maddening. This is this is just what society needed is a whole bunch of people with too much money and not enough sense going. I wonder what the common folk want. You know, the people who are watching this want us to make it shorter, smaller and put a bunch of crap in it. You know, put it in a blender and then shake it up and go, is it good? Did you like it? Did you watch the whole thing? No, I probably would have watched the whole thing if you cared at all for the medium itself. But instead, you got a business degree, didn't you? But honestly, until until they restore the eight, I don't think I'm going to watch. 
Oh, honestly, this is this is the exact opposite of getting people to watch is just being like, well, you know, fuck those people. Truthfully, at the rate that they're going, I hope this is the worst telecast they ever have. Well, yeah, they're too busy trying to bow down to to what people want instead of just doing their goddamn job. Yeah. Um, in a in a in a topic change, Delightful. and to and to wrap it up for our dear listeners, since they've heard us rant and rave now for a little while. Sorry, that just made me so angry. <laughs> um, what have we been watching? Um. That's a great question. What have we been watching? Here? I've been watching the Halloween movies. You can go and um, check out my reviews of those on um, on Letterboxd. Um, oh yeah! So last week we did a a sort of horror movie double feature for our date night. Um, e- even though we're married, we always try to make sure that every Saturday is is date night even if it's something as simple as staying home and so last week we did a double feature of horror movies and we watched uh titan and uh the new texas chainsaw massacre uh dear what did you real quickly think of of those movies oh gosh okay so i i can only give you like the the premise of, I'm not going to pretend like I can pronounce it with a French accent. Tatain. Um, woman has sex with a car, has hybrid baby, but all, all the while, that's like the B.C. plot of this movie. The real plot of this movie is she goes on a murder spree and has to, has to uh, evade the law. Mm-hmm. And uh, wow. I loved it. I thought it was really interesting. This movie... I did not know what was going to happen next. And I think that that's such a such a rare thing when when you watch so many movies um is is genuinely being surprised. I think I I think I like this movie more now than I did watching it. Um it, For me it was almost a dark fairy tale. Well, that's of yeah. A kind. Yeah, it kind of um I put it in the same shelf as I would put like Lamb. Yeah. For sure. Um Woo! Not for everybody. No, not but even, for a small percentage. If you're willing to risk it, if the, if my description of this movie sounds right up your alley, then I think you might love it. Um, if not, stay far away. This movie is not for you. Not even no. a smidge of dudes. Um, but no, I I really enjoyed it. It was a wild, crazy ride. It was like watching a roller coaster where I hated my lead. Yeah. Um. I think that you did a good job with that one. I'll talk a little bit about Texas Chainsaw. Um, I thought it was a blast. I know that, like, certain people have not enjoyed it, but actually it was the second most watched uh, movie or bit of Netflix content for, like, the last week. And, um, again, even though I think some of the politics of it are a little bit muddled, it's it's a fucking hoot. It's a comedy. It's right up there with, like, Evil Dead 2. Like, it is a splatter gore comedy. Oh, this movie is is actively... Like, I was cackling at how ridiculous it it, it gets. Um, the worst parts of the movie are when it takes itself too seriously. Which is honestly, the, like, the whole beginning setup bits that are like... Oh. But, like, opening 20. 
yeah but after that once once the roller coaster hits that first downward like wee like it's it, <laughs> there's there are no rules and it is i i think that to your point it is actually like actively making fun of like horror remakes as yeah a, it's as making a fun of legacy sequels regularly no i mean like it was it was just too good it was it was too funny no i had an absolute blast with it actual cackling in this movie because there were so many times where i was like this can't possibly be where they're going and then they would swerve so hard into it to the point of of just sheer ridiculous oh gosh when he yeeted her down the stairs yeah uh, that was perfect <laughs> Um, but that's pretty much all that we've been watching. Like I said, I've been rewatching the Halloween films, which is for a project that I'm working on that I'm, I'm very devoted to. Um, and so, like I said, if you, if you want to go and catch those, you can go and look at my letterboxd. I've been reviewing them all and ranking them and stuff like that. Or you can go to my Twitter or the film buds Twitter. And I've posted links, I think, to most of those reviews as well. Um, and then the only thing that, like, we're gonna try and catch is the, uh, the 50th anniversary of, um, The Godfather that's happening this weekend on, on the big screen. See. Um. Um, I mean, honestly, like, I haven't been able to watch anything because of, because of work, but I did start an audiobook because half of my job is just sitting around waiting for work to, to come my way, um, called news for all the people um i just started i've gotten through the introduction and i've finished i believe chapter one of it and it's really interesting it's a history of um basically like news as a medium and it's been really interesting to to kind of dive into um the untold stories because of the fact that like most of our news is especially in the u.s is very white centric um and getting to to learn about the the struggles of of people of color trying to get their their voices heard and getting a a more well-rounded version of history out there instead of just one person's perspective it's been really interesting i thought it was um i've, I've been enjoying it good um i guess that pretty much wraps up um all that we have for y'all next month i'm trying to to land some guests. We were supposed to have some guests this month, but they didn't really quite work out. We'll get them on. Um, but next month is going to be women in film all month long. Um, I need to work on that lineup, um, both of in terms of movies, but also in terms of, of finalizing our guests. One idea that we that you should, you know, potentially look forward to is um, anime films directed by women is potentially going to be one of the episodes that we do. I'm super curious about that. Um, so keep an eye out for all of that. Um, keep following us on all of our social media. I know that I've been harping on it a lot lately, but please, honestly, if if you feel so inclined, go and give us a review. March 1st is uh, when they officially begin opening up the deadline for becoming Rotten Tomato certified. And we haven't gotten, you know, to that 200 goal, and that doesn't mean that we won't get certified, but it would really mean a lot to us and really help our cause if you went and um, and gave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Um, you know, and if you've already given one us and it's it's 
giving us one and it's been a while, you know, drop another. Drop a few. It doesn't matter. I well, don't you know, care. Tell someone about, you know, an episode that they think they might like and ask them to do it. Um, also, uh, a little plug for some other upcoming content. March 7th, uh, you can go and read a review that I wrote for a movie called The Seed. It's coming to Shudder. Uh, it made the, the like, indie circuit. Shudder picked it up. Uh, reviews are embargoed until the 7th. The movie comes out the 10th. But you can come to the Film Buds, either our social media, where I'm going to post links to it, or just go to thefilmbuds.com. March 7th, we're going to have uh, a written review on a, on a brand new piece of content before it even comes out, you know, to the, to the general public. And so you can go and, and read my, my written review on that. Ooh, how elite. Um, beyond that, um, I'll, I'll leave the show on this. These are Turbulent times, I will put, without getting overly into the weeds on it, because I know that you don't come here to listen to me prattle on from a soapbox. Ugh, when are they not turbulent times? Welcome but, to my life. But, um... There can be good things to look forward to. I was having a hard time today, and I remembered that I had this to look forward to and and the chance to to talk to y'all and so you know there there can be touching moments that that transcend boundary that transcend where we're from and um i want everyone out there to to stay safe to look out for each other and to be good to each other and that's all I have to say about that. Um, and I guess what I'll say is, you know, stay as informed as you need to, but also learn to to turn it off and 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 stand in the sunshine and, you know, do the things that bring you joy because also, you know, the news isn't there to make you happy. It's there to make you mad. That's why you keep tuning into it. Yeah. But that's pretty much all that we have for y'all. Um, next week, we'll have a new episode, a new theme, maybe a guest. Stay tuned. Um, thanks as always for listening and have a good, good time. Bye. Bye.